Welcome all my creepy crime connoisseurs. This is Casket Case brought to you by the Sisters 3. With me is my two sisters by blood and magic. Hi guys, this is Chelsea, your oldest and most bougie sister. And I am your middlest sister, the one with all of the brains and equal humor. And then there's me, Onyx, the youngest and most likely to commit a murder. All right, so tonight we're just going to go ahead and dive right in. We're going to be talking about a case from Texas. Uh, his name is Kenneth McDuff. He was born on March 21st, 1946 in Rosebud, Texas. And he was born to... I think to, I've been there. Probably. He was born to Addie and John Allen McDuff. His mother had the nickname Pistol Packin' Mama. Pistol Packin' Mama. Yep. Because she carried a pistol in her purse and she once threatened a school bus driver with her gun after kicking her son Lonnie McDuff off the bus. His dad's friends all just called him J.A. He didn't get a cool nickname. Oh. He did. <laughs> this is J.A. and this is Pistol Packin' Mama. Yeah. <laughs> yep. He he didn't uh, threaten anyone in the community to merit a cool nickname? No, he wasn't psychotic enough. Okay. Uh, John Allen owned a successful concrete business during the concrete boom of 1960s. Addie was known for her very domineering person, although she was said that it was said that she would indulge and coddle Kenneth and even protect him from trouble. He Oh, so she a, like babied him quite a bit? Yes, he was very babied. He had a 22 rifle that he re reportedly used to shoot animals, making him very well known to the sheriff in his town. He was described in school as a bully with a hair trigger temper. He picked on smaller and weaker children until he once lost a fight to a popular athlete, Tommy Sammons, in the eighth grade. Due to the fact that he lost the fight, he then quit school and went to work with his dad in the concrete business doing manual labor. Could you imagine being in eighth grade and losing a fight and just deciding like, oh, I quit, I'm going to work. Yeah, like, can, just because some, some popular kid whipped your ass, like, I'm done, I'm not going back. And then his parents were like, okay. Okay. Yeah. Because in eighth grade, you're like 14, 15. Yeah. Dropping out of school. So in 1964, Kenneth is 18 years old when he gets arrested for 12 counts of burglary and one count of attempted burglary, spanning over three Texas counties. There was Bell County, Malam County, and Falls County. He brushed them off as pranks, but was found guilty and sentenced 12 four-year terms to be served concurrently. However, by December of 1965, Duff makes parole only to land himself right back in, getting right back into prison, getting into a drunken fight. He was only there briefly, but it was said that he bragged about his criminal record while he was there. He claimed he had raped and killed two women. Okay, so he went to prison for 12 counts of burglary yeah. and then was paroled and then went back to prison. He got into a fight and went back to prison. 
during his second stint was when he was bragging about having already killed two women? Yeah. But okay. I don't think there's actually any proof that he killed these women. But he did brag about all the trouble he had been in and his criminal record. So it possibly could be true. But I didn't find it. We just don't know. That. Yeah. We just don't know. So within seven months in July of 1966, Maduff meets Roy Dale Green through a mutual friend. And by August of that year, they were working together at John Allen's cement company, Pouring Cement. Okay, so his dad's company. Yes. So he meets okay. his guy through mutual friends and gets him a job working with his dad. Okay. On August 6, 1966, they were driving after work around town looking for girls. And by 10 p.m., Macduff noticed three teenagers sitting in a car in the parking lot of a baseball field. There was Robert Brand, who was 17, and his girlfriend, Edna Louise Sullivan, who was 16. They also had Robert's cousin, Mark Dunham, who was 15. Okay. So, McDuff, so they're all underage. They're very yeah, underage. Right, teen- yeah. Yeah. McDuff pulls in the parking lot about 150 yards away from the teenagers and starts walking towards them. When he gets close enough, he pulls his 38 Colt revolver out and orders them in their own trunk. McDuff then drives the teenagers forward on the highway. Okay, he orders them out of their car and into their trunk? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Then McDuff drives their car, which was a Ford, on the highway. He drove their car into a field and green drove mcduff's car behind him okay gotcha oh out of the baseball field parking lot into into the middle of nowhere yeah okay mcduff gets out and tells green to grab edna and put her in the trunk of his dodge coronada coronat coronet of his car i don't know i don't know cars it's his dodge car Okay. According to Green, McDuff then stated he would have to knock them off. He then fired six shots into the trunk of the Ford, despite the screams and pleads of Robert and Mark. Damn, dude. So he gets to this field. He yeah. opens the trunk and puts Edna in his own car, his own yeah. vehicle, or the trunk of yep. his own vehicle. Yep. And then just shoots the two boys. And they're like screaming. A 17-year-old and a 15-year-old who are like begging and pleading for their lives. Yep. Jesus Christ, dude. For no reason. Wow. For no reason, yeah. When he was unable to close the trunk due to the bodies of the boys, McDuff impatiently backs the car up to a fence and leaves the trunk open. So he just like, fuck this. This thing unclosed backs it up and just leaves it in this field wide open with these just two dead bodies chilling. Damn. Okay. Afterwards, McDuff then orders Green to wipe down the Ford and get rid of any fingerprints. McDuff takes his car with Edna in his trunk to a new location where he and Green raped her multiple times. Green claims his actions were performed under duress. Jesus. Bullshit! McDuff then tells Green to hand him something to strangle Edna with, and he hands McDuff a belt. McDuff, being unsatisfied, ended up using a three-foot-long piece of broomstick he found in his own car and raped her again, and then sat on her chest and held the broomstick against her throat until she died. 
Jesus, dude, that's dude, this shit is brutal. brutal. This is just like I told y'all for humanity. Like this is like I told y'all when I was researching this case, it was really hard for me to get through this case because it is just so violent and just for no reason. Yeah, because just because. Wow. And he's already been arrested, paroled, arrested, paroled, like, in and out of the system. And possibly killed two women in this time. That have never been linked to him. Right. But, but allegedly. As, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Allegedly, yes. But you also have to think he's only 18 at this point. He's 18 years old right now? Mm-hmm. When he killed a 17, 16, and 15-year-old, he's only 18. But this is also back in what, like 1965, you said? This was, yeah, 66. 66? No, he couldn't have been 18, no? How long was he in prison? Uh, if he so was he born is, in the 30s. Hold on, he is... No, just kidding, he's 20. Okay, that's still not much of yeah. a difference. No, so yeah, at this point, he is only 20 years old. What year was he born? He was born in 1946. But by oh, 46. 18. Yeah, so and then yeah, 64, he was 18, and this happened in... 1966. 66. So he's only 20. Okay. Damn. That's crazy. Okay. I thought he was older than that. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. Holy crap, though. That's still brutal, though. Like, the the murder. Well, yeah. Being 20 years old and killing three people and, like, multiple multiple times raping one of them, it's just. And then not even, like, very quick. Not even in a very quick and fast way, but by strangulation, which already takes seven minutes of just sitting there and strangling. Like, you have seven minutes. I don't, I mean, he was probably, like, a heavy dude. Pushing a broomstick against your throat like that, he probably crushed her windpipe completely. Oh, God, yeah. She. um, I mean, that's crazy. So... The two men take the body of Edna Sullivan and dump her in some tall grass. They then head to a gas station where they purchased sodas and then went back to Green's house where McDuff stayed the night. Jesus. So not only did you violently and brutally kill these three people, but then you just go get sodas. Like, nothing happened. And then we're just going to Okay, I can't close this trunk, so I'm just going to leave it up. It, open and exposed up against a fence in the middle of a field, and then also I just brutally raped sodomized and killed this girl i'm just gonna dump her in some tall grass listen i bet you she fought and that dude that (sighs) anyway the boys bodies were found the next day in their trunk that morning mcduff buried his revolver next to green's garage and then called a mutual friend called richard boyd McDuff asked Boyd if he could bring his car to Boyd's house and wash his car in Boyd's driveway. Okay. The following day, Green hears coverage of the murders on the radio and begins to panic. He breaks down. He tells Boyd's parents what happened. Boyd's parents tell Green's parents, who talk him into turning himself in and testifying against McDuff. He leads detectives to Edna's body. Okay, so... McDuff calls Boyd and say, can I wash my car in your driveway? Boyd says, sure. Sure. And then the following day, Green hears coverage of the murders 
and tells yeah. Boyd's parents. Yeah. So I'm guessing I Boyd's I don't parents know calls Green's parents. Right. Okay. And then so McDuff had nothing to do with that part of it. No, that's okay. just how Green basically turns himself in and testifies against McDuff in this murder. Gotcha. McDuff was arrested by Falls County Sheriff Brady Pamplin and Deputy Marshal Thomas Parnell. Sheriff Pamplin served with Texas Rangers before serving in the Army during World War II. Oh, this so, guy was like a badass. Texan. During the trial, Green took the stand, and it is reported that he appeared terrified to be in the same room as Macduff. His mannerisms and behaviors while on the stand reasoned with the jury as an honest testimony. Then Macduff took the stand in his own defense. Witnesses of his time on the stand say that he acted like he couldn't care less. He blamed Green for the murders and denied any involvement. The jury didn't believe Macduff as easily. McDuff was sentenced to death by electric chair, and then Green got sentenced to 31 years. He was released in 1979, and he was dubbed the broomstick killer. Damn. Mc McDuff wow. was, not Green. <clears throat> right. Okay, yeah, I figured. McDuff's sentence was commuted to life in 1972 when a Supreme Court struck down all death penalty statutes. Statutes. Yeah. Man. It's just it's just an order. So basically, he said he got rid of the death penalty, so they had to commute his sentence to life with the possibility of parole. Which is crazy, because, like, he's 20. That at some point, somebody, like, even though, I, okay, I understand you're changing um, the laws in Texas, and so no more death penalty, whatever, uh, which, What? And but I feel like that should be an exception. There should be exceptions. Well, no. If you got the death penalty and there's no death penalty, then all of those sentences got commuted. But I feel like they should have gone through and worked their way through the ones, the heinous crimes, like the really bad ones, and it should have been life without the possibility of parole. And then some yeah. of the other ones, I have to imagine, there's not really a good crime to have been committed that merited the death penalty to begin with but i don't know i feel like they shouldn't have just slapped a life with the possibility of parole on all of them for sure i mean i just don't get it he's 20 he killed three people it was just the whole situation was very brutal and now instead of like that doing life without the possibility of parole now you're giving him a chance to get out like that to me makes no sense but also when you when you're when you go for parole you have to go in front of a parole board you have to go right. in front of a, a, a slew of people and mm -hmm. explain it to why you feel like you should be let out so if he goes in front of these people these are the people that are are they have this choice in their hands they're in control of right so i get that he's not in control of whether or not he gets out but having the possibility Gives him a chance. Right. That he shouldn't have. I think it was all bullshit. I think the system had failed him time and time again. And then when he finally did something serious, they failed him one more time. Well, not failed him, but failed society. Failed yeah, the, the system failed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway. He then hired a lawyer who gathered evidence attempting to prove that Green was the real killer. 
At one point, McDuff spoke to one of the parole board members one-on-one -on -one and attempted to bribe him with $10,000 in order <laughs> to secure a wow. favorable decision on the parole application. Damn. He's stupid. He's not smart. This led to an additional two years added to his sentence for bribery. Hey, guys, can I get out? For $10,000, and they're like, no, but you can have two more years. The additional two years end up being pointless because in October of 1989, he was granted parole when a federal judge ordered the release of 150 prisoners a day in order to compensate for overcrowding. He returned to Rosebud. Holy! Texas. If you don't get out after this situation and go, I am the luckiest man to ever walk the earth, and I'm going to change my life. What? I'm mind blown. Like you have got to be the luckiest. He doesn't care about that. But I'm just saying, just in general, he had to have been the luckiest man ever. I don't. Okay. Well. In oh, July, Lord, let's let this murderer out with a slew of other people. Jesus Christ. 150 a day. Like, you think, okay, 150 a day. We have overcrowding. We need to release people. You would think they would maybe, I don't know, go through the cases and figure out which one is. Well, no, I'm sure that's exactly what happened. They started letting out the, the smaller offenses and and making their way up until they eventually got to his and they still had overcrowding so when they got to his case they said yeah and he was one that probably slipped through the cracks i have to assume but they uh, definitely there's... went through the smaller offenses first but they yeah, were still guess... overcrowded I guess when you're doing 150 a day, there can't be that many petty crimes versus worse crimes when you're talking about a high-security prison. Jesus, dude. In July of 1990, McDuff had a run-in with a group of black teenagers while walking down the main street sidewalk. The teenagers crossed his path, and McDuff, being a rabid racist, decided to start yelling racial slurs at the teenagers. Even pulled a knife on one of them. Jesus. The exchange should have sent him back to prison for life, but he fell through the cracks yet again and was released for a few months due to overcrowding. See? I can't with this guy. 150, like, releasing criminals is not lessening your overcrowding situation. You need to come up with a better solution. This, he was released twice for overcrowding. It just shows what our system is like, because let's be for real. Even oh my this was God, in, dude, that blows my fucking mind. Even though this was in the 80s, I mean, the system hasn't gotten much better, I assume. I no, hope it did, but... It has not, <laughs> at all. Exactly. If anything, it's gotten worse. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Dude. It has gotten worse, y'all. It's... While in prison in 1986, What'd she say? Flag on the flag. <laughs> <laughs> oh my 
Oh, man. Okay, sorry. Um, continue. Tyra <laughs> is a bitch, so why he was in prison. His brother, who he idolized a lot, and some say he was even trying to fill his footsteps and follow behind him and do the things he did because he was also a very violent um, troublemaker. He ended up dying over a fight over a woman in 1986, and McDuff was in prison, so he was not able to, I don't think, go to that funeral. Let's oh, I'm sure he, he probably didn't attend the funeral. After being released, he got a job at a gas station making only $4 an hour, while also taking classes at Texas State Technical College in Waco, Texas. And, like, doing research, I was like, oh, my God, maybe he's, like, changing his life around. He's going to college. He's got a job. You know who else went to college? Ted you know who Bundy. else had a job? Ted Bundy. Dahmer, too. Like, a lot of them, actually. BTK. Yeah. Like. Dahmer went to college? Yeah, he went to Ohio State. For three months. <laughs> <laughs> Before he dropped out. Because he failed. Within those first few months, like, failed. He had a, a .47 GPA. Probably. No, that's no, that's what it was. It was less than one. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because he was drinking. Yeah, all the oh, time. Yeah. Anyway, excessively. Okay, the wrong case. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> when working, he would often make statements about wanting to rob the market and take the senior manager's wife, Melissa Northrup, who was 22. He started forming a fascination for her. Take her away! Where did I take her? Just kidnap her. Just take her. Lord. Although on parole, McDuff made no attempts to show he had reformed. It is believed he started killing again just three days after being released. God damn, dude. In October, of uh, October 14th, 1989, the body of Safaria Serafia Parker who was 31, was discovered in the town of Temple, Texas, only 48 miles away from the Waco, Texas college. Oh. McDuff was not arrested for this crime, though he did find himself back in jail after a parole violation. So this woman was, he Murdered. was linked to that crime? Eventually, yes. Eventually, but not right now. Not right now. So at this point, he is not linked to this crime, and he wasn't arrested for the crime, but he did get a DUI and was arrested. And now he is back in jail for something completely unrelated. Okay, sorry. My brain, like, I don't know. I glitched. I don't know what just happened. Addie McDuff paid $2,200 total in expenses for two Huntsville attorneys to evaluate the possibility of McDuff's release. Huh? His mom hired lawyers and paid them to try to get him out. Stop it. Oh, no. Listen, I love my kids, but honestly, if police come snooping around and I know something and they start asking questions, I'm, yup, yup. Not like that. Even, listen, even if I don't know anything, if they killed a person, I'm going, peace out, bro. I'll visit you every day. So there's one thing of like, like absolutely, but if they're coming like asking and, and my kids think I'm going to, what? protect them stand up for them from doing something like that and they start asking yep. questions i know the answers to i mean obviously if they come in and be like yo kid kill somebody i say no what the fuck are you talking about but if they start asking questions what were they here on this night at this time and i know the answer yeah i love no, you they death, weren't but... here 
I'm not covering for you. No, no. hell no. Not for some shit like that. I'll write you. <laughs> December 18th, 1990, McDuff gets released yet again, where he begins drinking heavily and eventually gets addicted to crack. Whoa. That's, wow. Intense. Okay, I mean, so... That's intense, but not worse than, like, rape and murder. So no, but typically really with repeat offenders, there's a sense of, of control, especially considering he wasn't addicted to anything when he first started committing the crimes right. to then get to a point where he's continuing to commit these crimes, but also drug use. It does happen, sure, but in my, I don't know, experience yeah it does seem like people who aren't already out of control with one thing right don't typically get to that point it seems right. to be very much like a control issue for serial killers mm-hmm. on october 10th 1991 while cruising around mcduff picks up an escort named brenda thompson and proceeds to tie her up and parks 50 feet away from a police checkpoint. Huh? So he picks her up in Waco. He picks up this escort in Waco called Brenda Thompson and then drives to a roadblock and parks 50 feet away from that roadblock. As officers oh. walk towards McDuff's truck, Thompson tries to escape by repeatedly kicking the windshield, cracking it several times. McDuff so wait, is- at this point, she's under duress. Yes, she's trying to escape. She's oh, shit. Out. She's okay. trying to get out of the windshield. She cracks it several times, but McDuff then speeds towards the officers. In the re- officer's report, it said that they had to jump out of the way and to avoid being hit. They got up, they got in their car, and they started chase, but lost him when McDuff cut off his headlights and drove the wrong way on a one-way street. <sighs> this dude This dude is out of his mind. Okay, you psycho no fucking kidding he then headed to a wooded area near route 84 where he parked and proceeded to torture thompson to death her body would not be found till seven years later like that it enrages me that you gotta think he's going the wrong way on a one-way street now i don't know what time this is but i'm guessing it had to be late if it was dark enough yeah right so so I'm guessing not maybe not a lot of people were on that street for so was it chaotic? No one's talking at him. Not. Like how did he get away with cutting his lights off and going on a one way street in order to lose the police? But then you're so close to being rescued just to not be. Like that's it feels so unfair. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I honestly so on October 15th of 1991, just five days after the car chase and murder, McDuff is seen with a 17-year-old escort, Regina Deanne Moore, arguing at a Waco hotel. A short time later, the pair drove in McDuff's truck to a remote area near Texas State Highway 6, close to Waco, Texas, where McDuff ties her arms and legs with a stocking before killing her. She would also... She was 17? Yes. God damn, dude. She would also not be found for another seven years. Holy shit. So they had to have found them, uh, like, at the same time. Right. Around the same time. It had to have been, like, within within the same year they were found. 
Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Duff is also believed to be one of to be the one who murdered Cynthia Renee Gonzalez, 23, found on September 21st, 1991, in a creek bed by a county road in heavy terrain only six days after being reported missing in Arlington. Yeah, that so, was like days before, I, I, like a year and a couple days before your birthday. Your birthday. Yeah. Yep, it was almost exactly, it was a year and two days before I was born. I wasn't even a year old. We had just gotten back to the States. Yeah. December 29th, 1991, McDuff with an accomplice, Alva Hanks Worley, were driving looking for drugs and ended up at an Austin car wash where they kidnapped a Louisiana native, Colleen Reed, in front of eyewitnesses who called police. But unfortunately, by the time the police got there, McDuff had already driven off with Worley and Reed. The balls, dude. In broad daylight, kidnaps this woman. And they call the police. Yeah. And, and he still fucking gets away. That's fucking. Cr oh my god! I don't. Both I, this man was on that road. Yep. Both men raped Reed, and McDuff proceeded to drop Worley off and dispose of Reed's body. In April of 1992, interview that Worley did, he admitted he had assaulted and tortured Reed with cigarettes, but was adamant that he did not participate in her murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I said. I was like, yep. okay. You will rape a woman and you will burn her with cigarettes, but murder is off the table. It's okay. I mm, I get what you're saying, that it's not a far leap to assume that if you're with a guy who and you're doing these things with them, but yeah. at the same time, God murder though. I can definitely see that line of not that I agree with it or in any right. way, but I can see how there would be a line between like raping and physically harming and humiliating somebody and outright fucking killing them, murdering them. I don't know. I feel like. But at the same time, have... it's probably a very thin line. Exactly. Because I feel like for you to even have the anger to purposely burn someone's skin Absolutely. with cigarettes, you have to have a whole lot of anger to do that. And I feel like if you just let that anger go and spiral on its own, murder really couldn't be that hard. Do I think that he made it clear? That he had a line that he wouldn't cross? Not at all. I absolutely believe that he oh, yeah. partook in murdering somebody. But can I say without a shadow of a doubt that what he's saying isn't plausible? No. I mean, yeah, it's possible, but is it believable? Hmm. No. It's uh, highly, 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 highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. February 24th, 1992, Valencia K. Joshua was seen at McDuff's dorm room knocking on his door. Uh -oh. He later strangled her, and on March, March 15th, her body was found at a golf course near his college. Jesus, dude. And I literally could not find more on her. Like, I don't... I, I did read that she went to the college as well, so she was not a sex worker. But I don't know why she was looking for him. What the fuck? Okay, but 
Was he on anybody's radar at this point? I mean, I, I assume he had to be. He had to have been. Okay, but also, he's in college? Mm-hmm. How the fuck is he getting accepted into a college with a criminal record like his? After, I think it was the first release, he got a job and... They don't check criminal records for students? Well, I assume not. Because you got to think his first release was for burglary. So he got in college. Why do you say, why do you say it weird? You like burglary. enunciate every, every single... Burglary. Burglary. You're adding an additional syllable. <laughs> what syllable? Burglary. You're saying burglary. Burglary. You're saying burglary. No, burglary. <laughs> burglary. Burglary. Don't hear a difference. You don't hear a difference in burglary and burglary? Burglary. I'm oh. saying it. I don't understand. <laughs> I know. Okay. What was what was his first offense, Onyx? His first offense was breaking into houses. Okay, right. Anyway, continue. On, on March first of nineteen ninety-two, pregnant Melissa Northrup went to work at the Quick Pick Market, and after not coming home, her husband reports her missing. How old? If you she? remember right. She was 22. Uh, that's what I thought you said. Okay. 22. Yeah. She was 22. And he remember at his first job, he formed a fascination for her and would make comments all the time. And now she's missing. Oh. And actually at this time that she went missing, she's also pregnant now. Yeah. Do you know how much time has spanned since his first job and where we are now? His first job was in 89, and we are in 92. Okay, so about three years. Yeah, about three years. After investigating, police found out the market had $250 missing from the register, and McDuff was seen in the area at the time of her disappearance. Through interviews, they also found out by McDuff's college friend that McDuff was asking for his help in robbing the market. A month later, on April 26th, Northrop's body was found by a fisherman. Oh, no. Could you imagine being, like, so excited? You, you're you a manager at this place. You're so excited. Your wife works with you, and she's pregnant, and then all of a sudden... That's your whole world, dude. Yeah. They're both just ripped away. Everything of his wife, his child, like... By someone who used to work with you. Ugh. Ugh. While investigating McDuff's crimes, which were spread out across several counties, officer found out that McDuff was peddling drugs and owned an illegal firearm, both federal offenses. An arrest warrant was issued on March 6, 2000, March 6, 1992. Okay. At this time, McDuff fled from Texas to Kansas City, Missouri, where he got a new car and a fake ID using the name Richard Fowler. He then gets a job as a trash collector. After the discovery of Northrup's body, McDuff was featured on America's Most Wanted, where a co-worker, Gary Smythe, Smithy, recognized him and called police on May 1st of 1992. 
Damn. Police searched the name Fowler and found he had been arrested for, drumroll please, soliciting escorts. Wow. Hmm. How loud I called it. On May 4th, 1992, McDuff was pulled over during a garbage stop. He became America's Most Wanted's 208th successful capture. Good for America's Most Wanted. I missed that show. Me too. There actually is a show, the guy who did America's Most Wanted actually does a show kind of like America's Most Wanted, John Walsh. He does a different show. What is that show called? It's exactly like America's Most Wanted, though. And it's called um, Captured or something. So John Walsh does a show called The Hunt that's exactly like America's Most Wanted. What is it? What network is that on? I didn't know Netflix, that was a thing. I think. Either Netflix uh, or Hulu. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. Bah, bet. The Hunt. Um, so, yeah, he was arrested by a team of six police officers, one of which was Larry Pamplin, the son of Brady Pamplin, who was the sheriff to arrest him in 1966. How crazy is that? What? Your dad, your dad arrests a criminal, and then years later, you arrest that same violent criminal. Hell yeah. Wow. That's really fucking cool. I mean... Then, he should have never had the opportunity, but... I mean, for sure. On June 26th of 1992, McDuff was indicted on one count of capital murder for Northrop in McLennan County, being found guilty with one journalist saying if there has ever been a good argument for the death penalty, it's Kenny McDuff. Obviously, he was already yeah. on... <laughs> He's already on death row. It was said during this trial, McDuff was rude and disru- disruptive. He tried to represent himself, but could not provide truthful accounts of the night Northrop was killed. McDuff then goes on trial for the murder of Colleen Reed. And during this trial, it said he was even more disruptive than the Northrop trial. Jesus. This guy just does not care, dude. I want to clearly punch him. On February 18th, 1993, a jury sentences McDuff to death again. In a special punishment hearing, due to the number of appeals being heard, there were delays. After which, the appeals Western for District, what? I don't know. Probably anything and everything he could find. After which, the Western District Court denied habeas corpus relief and rescheduled the execution. Good. Upon denial of authorization to yet another appeal, McDuff released the location of Regina Moore and Brenda Thompson's resting place. As his execution date neared, he was taken out under tight security and showed police the remains of Colleen Reed. He was like, well, shit, I'm about to die. Might as well show them. So Colleen Reed and all them people only got found because he showed them. Jesus. Which, that was the seven years. That's why they were found at the same time, because he no, showed he police. Showed which kudos to him for at least doing that. Like he could have died without showing them. And though they were escorts, they did have families who probably wondered where they were. No, no kudos for him. He's an asshole. And that's just basic human like decency, which clearly has none. When he has none. And I don't disagree. Like, fuck this guy. He's, he has. Do you see what you're saying in the sense of 
At he least he did that much. At least he did that much. Yeah, not he so much for the them, like. But... Maybe not for the family, but it benefited them. Yeah, to get those not answers. so much kudos, but at least he you did know, that. I know what you mean. Yeah. On November eighteenth, nineteen ninety eight, McDuff is put to death by lethal injection in Huntsville Prison. Upon execution, his remains were not claimed, causing him to be buried in prisoner cemetery with his headstone only reading X eleven seventeen nineteen ninety eight nine 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 zero five five. Good, good for him. Prisoner number and the date he died. Right, which is. I ain't going to say funny to me, but it's just karma. Because he had a he Absolutely. had brothers. Like, I couldn't find exactly how many brothers he had and how many sisters. But I know for a fact he at least had two brothers and one sister. And his parents didn't claim him. His siblings, Like, they were like, I don't want nothing to do with this. Well, Chase he let those women's bodies go unclaimed for seven years. And he had no years. intentions mm-hmm. of helping them become found so yes you're right karma that you're now in an unmarked grave well not unmarked but the only markings on it are your prisoner number and you died good for you for someone like say if i wanted to go and visit a prisoner cemetery for whatever stupid reason i would not know who's who because you only have your prisoner number and unless people knew your prisoner number they don't know that's you and now you have to rest in an area where no one knows who you are. And that's awesome. I agree. His last words were, I'm ready to be released. Release me. And his last meal was hamburger meat fashioned to look like steak. Just Following steak. his crimes, they didn't want him to have steak. He's like, give me a steak. They're like, we're going to give you hamburger meat. You get you get the hamburger meat. You get the hamburger That fake steak. <laughs> <laughs> it's meat, okay? Following his crimes, Texas began an overhaul to ensure that no one like him were able to get out on parole. They changed the rules and improvised the monitoring upon release. Collectively, these new rules in Texas became known as McDuff Laws. Ha. Huh. But also, like, you were such a shitty person, they had to make a law after you. Yeah, I'm. I will say I'm glad that they recognized where they fucked up. Yeah, they should have recognized. I don't know. They after definitely the first, fucked up. After the second time, his first murder, you release him after his first murder. Maybe you should have recognized that. Maybe, maybe his second or third time going to jail after those murders. Yeah, like what? <laughs> I feel like there was plenty of opportunity for them to recognize where they went wrong way before. They got way out of hand. Absolutely. Yeah. They got way, way out of hand. It's crazy. His count is between nine to 14 victims. That's his count. Oh, they don't even know? They don't know. So he could have as many as 14 victims, but they don't know for sure if it's him or not. So we know for sure it was at least nine. It could be up to 14. And that's crazy to me. What the fuck? It's so crazy to me. But that was the story of Kenneth McDuff and his violent brother and crackhead mama and his successful day. He was intense, dude. He said there's a 
documentary about this guy? Um, it's a um, case coverage on like Dateline or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, but not like a documentary. You want to see it? You want to watch it? Is that what you're... Well, I mean, it's just... What was it on YouTube? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few of them on YouTube uh, about I'm the Rumsdale Um Daily Motion has posted a clip, a 42-minute clip about Kenneth McDuff. If you want to go watch that on YouTube. True Crime Reporter has also... On Free to Kill, did an episode face to face with a serial killer, Kenneth McDuff. Also, you- if you guys would like do any subscriptions to stuff to help your research, share the wealth. Because I've got a couple that I need to send to you guys that I use. But if you guys are using, um, um I haven't started using any yet. But I, I've always said that if I come across a good one, I'll subscribe. Um, let me, I'll send you guys what I've been doing. Um, one of which gives me access to basically libraries. And so you can rent books and stuff to read on your cases. Yeah. And those are incredible sources of information. So I'll send you guys that. Um, I'll text it to you in the group chat. Nice. Well, That's all for us today. We just wanted to thank you for listening. We encourage all of you to reach out and tell us what you think. You can reach us on Twitter at CasketCasePod, on Instagram at CasketCase.Pod, or even write us at podcast.CasketCase at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you and what you have to say, and even get your recommendations on cases you find fascinating. We love all of you weirdos, so be safe out there, and we will see y'all in the grave. Bye. Bye.